Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That was one of the Beatitudes, of course, stated by our Master Himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And surely that reminds us of the desire that should always fill our heart as we think about being filled with the works of, of the, word, uh, the Word of the Lord Himself. And tonight, as we come to a, yet another installment in our series of lessons on the book of Daniel, you might want to go ahead and be turning to that location, and we'll be looking at again at a few passages found in that interesting 12-chapter book. And as we look at them, we'll again always keep in focus the fact that this was a marvelous and amazing set of prophecies in, in so many ways, delivered, of course, before those events actually happened. And oh, how marvelously it should remind us of the greatness of our God, His ability to control the affairs of this world. As we begin our lesson tonight, we come to a, a statement of just reminder as much as anything else. Isn't it fascinating to give thought? And before we're finished with this series, I do hope to maybe use one lesson focused exclusively on the nature of the grandest fulfillment of all the features found in this book. And of course, that's the Master Himself, Jesus, the Son of God. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus explicitly said before He ascended back to heaven that all that is written in the Psalms, in the prophets, and in the writings concerning Me have fulfillment. With that in mind, then we should appreciate then that whatever was included in the writings, and Daniel was one of the writings, that it should appreciate Jesus said, all of it that referred to me has been fulfilled. We've already seen so many amazing things in this book. As we develop them somewhat more thoroughly, could we at least remember that in the very last book in all of the book of God, in Revelation 19.10, there doesn't it tell us expressly that the spirit of the prophets is the testimony of Jesus. Maybe in light of that, let's close that introductory slide and proceed to move then as we give thought to the biblical perspective of history. This next slide brings us, quite frankly, to at least a very, very quick summary. Throughout our series so far, we have seen an image that was in the dream Nebuchadnezzar had had. And in that dream, we remember that there was a section of gold a section of silver, a section of brass or bronze, and finally, a section of iron, and then a section mixed of iron and clay. As we've looked at all of them, so far we have come to appreciate that the head of gold was identified as Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian Empire represented the golden section. Following that last Lord's Day evening, we looked at a silver section and found on that occasion that that was representative of another kingdom that was inferior to the Babylonian one. That kingdom, of course, was the Medes and Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. You'll notice as you look at this particular slide that that harmonizes with chapter 7's vision that Daniel was given by the God of heaven. In that particular chapter, Daniel first saw a lion with eagle's wings. Oddly enough, this lion with eagle's wings, we noticed immediately the wings were plucked. It lifted itself up. Maybe in light of all of that, these pictures are what you and I used. First of all, this replica, if you please, of that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. We identified the gold section again, the Babylonian Empire. God said that. The silver section, the Medo-Persian Empire, God informed us of that. Not only that, we notice these pictures as well. 
that lion with eagle's wings that lifted himself up. And then at the bottom, that second thing, that second beast that Daniel saw was a bear. But you'll notice it was raised up on one side. As you and I had looked at all of that, maybe at this point our mind still races as we think about just how special it is to serve the God of heaven who not only revealed these things to Daniel, but they have every one come to pass exactly as God said they would. I hope none of us ever lose the fascination that's ours to contemplate the God of heaven who reveals history this way, and He did it to Daniel. And as it came to pass, might we ask, how confident should individuals have been when the Medo-Persian Empire came to pass exactly like He said it would 200 years earlier? When it came to pass, shouldn't folks have bowed in submission to God? Shouldn't they have been awesomely reminded of just how remarkable He is? Surely that answer is yes. May we ask, is any less true today? You and I, though we live so many years removed from the days of Daniel, shouldn't we be impressed with the minute exacting details revealed in the book of Daniel? And as we certainly appreciate their continuing revelation and certainly the degree to which they came to pass. Tonight, of course, we come to yet another aspect of our study. This slide leads us into that, and it does so as follows. We'll be looking again at chapters 2 and 7 primarily, but also at least a few respective means concerning chapter number 8. Let's revisit again as you think about that image. Now, I have a picture that you and I might notice. It's the same picture we've seen before, but please notice that image here at the left, beneath the section of gold and beneath the section of silver, there was a section of bronze. Other translations read it brass. Either way, that's a clear distinction from the two that have gone before it. Bronze is not the same as silver and it's not the same as gold. I wonder what was represented by this section of that image. What did the God of heaven have in mind? What was He informing as He related the interpretation through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar? Let's go back to the previous slide if we might. In that image, the bronze, or shall we say the brass section, starting at the very top. In Daniel chapter 2, verse number 32, we immediately notice that this was a separate and distinct section that came beneath the other two. Just as surely as the other two had in mind a king, and quite frankly a kingdom, that will also be true of this one. But you might also notice before we complete that, we might also appreciate that it has an analog. It has a corresponding presentation in the visions of chapter 7. So far we've seen a lion with eagle's wings. But there was another beast, and you may remember that it looked like a bear that was raised up on one side. What was the third animal? Let's look in Daniel chapter 7 and let God describe it. In verse number 6 of Daniel chapter 7, it says, And after this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Back to that picture we had noticed earlier. If you'll cast the spotlight of your consideration at the bottom right, you'll notice that the third beast that Daniel saw arise out of the sea, it was a very unusual creature. 
it looked like a leopard. But not or any ordinary leopard because it had four wings. A leopard with four wings, but not only that, it had four heads. Can you picture that? Again, an artist has tried to do us at least some justice to help us appreciate what it was in some facsimile that Daniel saw. A leopard with four wings and four heads. As you notice, the next verse goes on to describe yet something completely different. On that occasion, I'm sure Daniel was greatly excited as to wonder what was represented by this leopard. You and I shall see as we continue our study this evening. Back to that previous slide. The first thing we can say is if we borrow the language of chapter 7 of Daniel, verse number 17... God informed Daniel that each of these represented a king. And quite frankly, a kingdom was in view. And so the brass or bronze section of that image, as well as this leopard-like image or this leopard-like creature, was representative of a kingdom. You'll notice as we come next on that slide, thankfully, we have the God of heaven informing us in no uncertain details as to what this kingdom was we must look into chapter 8 to let God specifically tell us. So would you be turning to chapter 8 with me? A moment ago, Brother Wendell read for us from chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. As he did, if I may summarize some of that, it really carries on almost uniformly from the study you and I had made just one week ago. You may remember then, beginning in verses 2 and 3, that there was a ram that Daniel saw in this vision two years after that first vision of chapter number 7. Two years have now passed. Daniel sees this ram, the ram you and I studied last Sunday night. We learned that that ram, by the very words of God, represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, it had two horns, but one horn was higher than the other one, and the higher horn came up last. The Median Empire was the first horn, the Persian one was the second, and as that Persian empire rose to far greater prominence and for more lasting dominion, that was the horn that was second. Interestingly enough, you and I noted, though, that the might that was characteristic of that empire ran into a very great force, a force represented as a he-goat. You may notice in particular in verse number 5 it says... And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Based on our study so far, if we had to guess, I'm sure we'd quickly guess this goat was representative of another empire. The same one that was represented by the brassy section we'd seen earlier, by the leopard we just noted in chapter 7. Here was another reference to an empire. As you notice on this particular slide, something fascinating has told us, namely, this he-goat had one notable horn. That, too, is somewhat of an unusual thing. Most of us are accustomed to seeing a goat have a couple of horns, if it has any at all. This one had one horn. Not only that, it was a notable horn. That word carries with it the thought it was a preeminent horn. It was a horn that carried a great deal of power and majesty with it. As you and I continue our study, you notice the time came in verses 6 and 7 that this he-goat made war against the ram. You may notice in particular that the he-goat was victorious. 
Now that ram was representative of the Persian Empire. You and I are going to ask before we're finished tonight, was there an empire that fought against Persia and defeated it? And if so, might it have some semblance, some characteristic representation in the character of this he-goat? However, as you look a little bit further, if you'll notice with me in verse number 21 of Daniel chapter 8, we are told who the he-goat was. It says, and the rough goat, that's the he-goat, is the king of Grecia. We already have the next empire identified. There, it's called Grecia. You and I likely know it far better as Greece. We still have, of course, a country in Europe today by that name. It's Greece. Of course, as we come to the New Testament and see many other apparent studies of that place, so many times across the biblical stage will come a reference in some way or another to the country, to the region known as Greece. For right now, as you continue with me, you'll notice some fascinating things are said about this he-goat. When he was strong, the horn was broken. That notable horn was broken off, and in its place came up four ones. You'll notice they waxed great. At least one little horn coming out of those did. And at that, you'll notice that their slide closes. Are we still in wonderment about some further details concerning this Grecian kingdom? Let's see if we can fill in a few details if we might. I hope with all those features about the he-goat, about the leopard, about the brassy section, we'll see a convergence to the features on this slide in the next couple to come. First of all, the fact remains... Historically, now that God has identified the Grecian Empire, let's go ahead and observe. That part of the world that you and I know so well is that country of Greece. It rests, of course, just to the east of modern-day Italy. It is a very well-known and interesting part of our planet. In 333 B.C., the Macedonian army, that's just another word for the Greek army, the Grecian army, they were led by a particular general, a king that he would soon come to be, known as Alexander the Great. Alexander's father was a man named Philip of Macedon, and hence Macedonian Empire. His father basically lent his name to that area and territory. And even in the New Testament, we even remember Paul addressed churches in Macedonia, be that as it may, in about 333 B.C., Alexander the Great took over as the leader of the Greek, and, Greek army because his dad died that year. His father, Philip of Macedon, ultimately was assassinated. He was put to death. As Alexander came to, to the leadership, he was the one represented by that notable horn. He was the one represented as it related to this he-goat, this Greek empire, and Alexander the Great was by far the greatest military general that, that that empire ever had. A few more details might be these. We well know from history that the most favorite choice element used by that Greek empire for their armament and other things was bronze. Reminds you of the brassy section of the image, doesn't it? We seemingly have a nice identification and a correlation to that very matter in addition to that you'll notice that, again, it was likened in chapter 7 to a leopard. As you and I think about the creatures on earth, 
I'm sure that if we were to ask the things that most readily come to mind as we think about a leopard, we probably think speed. They are fast creatures. They can run so very quickly. Consider this with me. Inasmuch as the Greek Empire was here likened to that leopard, I believe we'll readily be able to conclude speed was very much in the mind of the Holy Spirit as it revealed these things to Daniel. I say that for the following reason. Notice it's mentioned again in chapter 8, verse 5. The he-goat, it says, came from the west, but he touched not the ground. This goat was running so fast it almost appeared as if he didn't even touch the ground. He moved so swiftly. He moved so rapidly. The quickness with which he proceeded, as you and I think about this Greek empire, could we not say it like this? that notable horn, Alexander the Great. Many have likened him as one of the greatest military generals to ever have lived. He ascended to the throne at the tender age of 20. A young man, many would say, age 20 when his father died and he became the king of the Greek empire. When he became the king of that empire, might we ask what happened in the years that transpired thereafter? When he began to reign, might I ask you to consider the details on that slide. In particular, within 11 short years, he had conquered the entirety of the known world. Think about the rapidity with which the Greek Empire proceeded. A little over 10 years and he had conquered every standing empire that was known. The Greek Empire had advanced so far from east to west... It was the most vast empire to that point the world had ever seen by far. Alexander had done it in that short period of time. Would you say that was quick? Would you say that was a speedy progression? As far as I was able to tell, Alexander was never defeated. His armies were never defeated while he was the captain. What a military genius many would say he was. Furthermore, as you begin to notice... The extent of that empire was so vast. It extended all the way from Egypt and even somewhat further east, or rather west, on the African continent, all the way to the far extents of what nearly would be modern-day India. Alexander ruled over all of it. The vastness of that empire reminds us again that leopard had come. The Greek empire with Alexander as its leader, it was fast. Notice again, it wasn't just moderately fast. That leopard had four wings. It was even faster than a typical leopard. May I suggest to you as you look at some of those features, it also reminds us of this. Remember, 11 years only. At this point, you might begin to ask, what happened after that? Why didn't he continue to conquer even more? Why not go as far as China or either other places like that? We'll see shortly. But next, might I ask you to notice, the beast, the leopard, had four heads. It didn't just have four wings, it also had four heads. That appeared to be indicative of there were four centers of power that began to rise within that Greek empire. And of course, after Alexander's death, those four areas were very much, very much identified. As you hold those thoughts in mind, at this point, notice that the Word of God was very specific. The horn was broken off. 
we've already learned the horn was representative of Alexander the Great. The horn was broken off, and in its place arose four ones. Could I ask you to notice? It would appear that was clear history written before its time because when Alexander died, that Greek empire was divided into four parts. Those four parts, you can see, I've tried to list at the bottom. On the one hand, there was the areas of Thrace and Bithynia, led by the commander known as Lysimachus, another region of centered interest and power, the region of Syria in the east, led by Seleucus. Thirdly, there was the area of Egypt, led by Ptolemy. And finally, there was the area of Macedonia, led by Cassander. History records all those things for us. Did you notice four ones arose after the horn was broken? As we continue our consideration, here's a picture, a picture of the Greek Empire. Would you notice how far in the east it extends from Libya in Africa all the way through the middle section, notice up into Europe, the area we would now recognize as Greece, all the way in the west across the Arabian Desert, across the areas that you and I would know today as the Persian area of the world, all the way to Pakistan in modern-day areas as far as nearly to India. Alexander ruled all of it, and he did so absolutely. May I suggest the leopard with eagle's wings, or rather with, with four wings provided to it? As you look at that picture, here's yet another. Trying to highlight a little bit about the the contrast between this empire and those that preceded it. Did you notice there in a dotted section, you have again this large dotted one is indicative of the Greek. The smaller dots are indicative of empires previous to this one. No one would argue the vastness of that which Alexander was able to accomplish. As we continue in our study this evening, let's come to this. Here's a colored section that tries again to pinpoint expressly those four regions, the four areas I mentioned quickly earlier. The color-coded section of Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, Lysimachus, all of them are there. Historians to this day readily set forth the appreciation about those four heads into which the Greek Empire became. I hope we're each impressed. Again, the Bible had this in it all along. It didn't call those names, admittedly. But it said that there would be four empires. With those in mind, let's go back and add some more details if we could. Don't you get thrilled as you think about the revelation of the book of God as it comes to any of these things? I would ask you to consider this. So far, we had mentioned a little bit about Alexander the Great, the notable horn. Consider this with me briefly. Eleven years is all the conquering efforts that he set forth. Why so few? The answer is the book of God had said that the horn was broken off. The horn was broken off. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you might perhaps make a little note beside that point there in Daniel chapter 8. When he was at the very height of his power when he was at the very height of his majesty, Alexander the Great died. 
Eleven years into this powerful conquering reign, no one had been able to even wage a military battle against him in any measure of confidence. And yet, while he was a tender age, of, in his early 30s, he died. And suddenly all the Greek expansion stopped. The horn was broken. God said that it would be 200 years earlier. And it came to pass when Alexander died. What killed him? History is a little bit uncertain. As near as I was able to tell, many wonder if there was foul play involved. Maybe some in his own empire poisoned him. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say either. This much we know, the horn was broken. God said that it would be. However his death came about, he died at the tender age again in his early 30s. And with it, the leopard, the wings had stopped in their flight. You'll notice on this particular slide, though, another thought was put before us. Did you notice back again in chapter 8 with me? It says, beginning in verse number 9, Out of one of them came forth a little horn. Out of one of these four regions of that Greek empire, a little horn came. I wonder what the little horn was, or I wonder who it was. The book of God only describes, it doesn't give us the actual name. It would seem from history that we might strongly suspect the following. Let me offer some consideration to you and you can perhaps make your decision with me. Remember, Alexander began to reign in about 333 B.C., well over 200 years later. We appreciate that there was to rise, that was long after Alexander's death, the four empires had arisen and God said that out of one of these would come a little horn. One of those four empires was the Seleucid Empire. We noted that earlier on the map. Sure enough, as you and I give thought to the Seleucids, out of them a very interesting man ultimately arose. His name... Antiochus Epiphanes. We probably will have more to say about him before our series ultimately finishes, but suffice it to say, Antiochus Epiphanes actually was a powerful figure late in the Greek Empire. Not too long before Greek would ultimately over, be overcome by another, but this Antiochus fellow, we ultimately know from history that he waged an incredibly strong and mighty war against Jews. He hated them. He absolutely despised those who gave interest in and pursuant of what you and I would call the Old Testament Scriptures. He hated Jews. That hatred led him in many ways to kill as many of them as he had what he thought opportunity to do. The hatred, the slaughter, the desecration that he set regarding the things that the Jews considered important. I would even ask you to notice, this gentleman magnified himself to the point. He lifted himself up almost as if he were a god on earth. And he absolutely despised the Jews. He hated everything they stood for. He even waged wars against them as much as he was able to do. The hatred, in fact, led him to defile the temple. If I were to ask you what one thing might a person do that would be the most defiling toward a Jew, what might it be? I would suspect if you were allowed to guess, you'd probably guess what Antiochus did. 
he brought pork meat into the temple. Jews couldn't eat pork. You and I know that. God absolutely said that's unclean meat. And Antiochus brought one in and had it slaughtered on the very altar in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what Antiochus did. He hated the Jews. And he wished, if he could, to at most revile and blaspheme against them. And you'll notice he succeeded. Not only that, he threatened the people in a very noteworthy way, and he even suspended the daily sacrifices that took place at the temple. I would ask you to notice again the reading. There in verses 10 and 11 of Daniel chapter 8, it says, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. I strongly suspect that this little horn was a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. It says he would take away the daily sacrifice and Antiochus did it. You may notice even beyond that. There was, however, a prophecy in chapter 8 verse 25 that even he would be broken. History records that that's exactly what happened. It's a rather fascinating thing to consider some of the detail specifics. I haven't included all of them there. If you'd like to read about them, I think you'd find it intriguing. Antiochus was so hated by the Jews for reasons you and I have described that on one occasion Antiochus went off to wage war in other parts and in other distant places and word had made its way back to the Jerusalem area that Antiochus had been killed. The Jews began to celebrate. Those in the Jerusalem and Judean area began to, in fact, celebrate because they thought the one who they hated and who had hated them had been slaughtered or at least killed in battle. Sometime later, Antiochus came back to the city. The rumor had been untrue. The story, in fact, had not been true at all. And now... He took out such vengeance because they were now celebrating because they thought he was killed. He now did even more mean things to them. That was Antiochus. What a rascal of a creature he was. As you and I come to the close of that slide, might we say, aren't you again impressed? The details of this man revealed in this way long before he was ever even born... May I submit to you that it seems to me several lessons might be in order. We'll use the close of that slide to set them before us. One of them surely must be this. When you and I give thought to Alexander's death, here was a young man. All the access to the medicinal matters of the day, he was the king after all. All the accesses to the known matters of medicine in the Greek empire. And yet he died at such a tender age. Shouldn't that remind you and me about the fact that as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Aren't we reminded time and again, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, Proverbs 27, 1. I wonder if Alexander got up that morning never giving a thought to the fact that that might be the day of his last breath. Should not you and I live with incredible wisdom and urgency? 
we're told in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, that we should live circumspectly, not as unwise, but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Perhaps those words ring so true in your ears and mine today, redeeming the time, making most of the time that we do have because we don't know when our end shall be. Alexander, for all the training and the wisdom that he had, remember, though we haven't made much statement of it tonight, his teacher was none other than Aristotle, one of the greatest thinkers of the day, and yet all that wisdom and thought wasn't able to save him when it came time for his demise. May you and I with urgency live with wisdom. So doing, understanding our days here are numbered. Didn't the psalmist say that my days are as in handbreadth? Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. Think how small a handbreadth is. And yet your life and mine in the flesh is no longer than that. Didn't Job say that my days are swifter than a post? Job 14. A post is a swift runner. Job said my life passes so quickly. I'm sure we would all agree, especially if we have much age on us. Sometimes those that are older are quick to say, Oh, how fast the days pass. One year seems as nothing anymore. May I submit to you that the Bible warns us that our time in this flesh is so very limited, so very temporary, and so very short. The key to it all is to live it with wisdom, to live it with prudence, and to live it in harmony with the Word of God so that whether our days be many or few, that the quality will be high And we'll be able to leave with a statement like this on our lips. Blessed are the dead, which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. Maybe another lesson, though, in addition to that one, might be this one. As we give another thought to the rough goat, as we give another thought to that which ultimately befell that Greek empire, As great and as mighty as it was, God had foretold that out of that notable horn being broken, four ones were to come. Those four ones, of course, are the ones we've listed tonight. And out of them became this little horn we've called Antiochus. Antiochus opposed the things of God. He ultimately would regret that. When he died, and he did eventually die, of course... We understand that he, of course, left this planet and he now resides in that realm of the great beyond awaiting the second coming of the Master. At this point, if he didn't die, saved. All implications I've been able to find from history asserted that he had no respect for anything of God and what a tragedy if he died that way. What a tragedy if anybody dies that way. Consider this. Split second after a person dies, he opens his eyes again somewhere just like the rich man did. That somewhere could well be then this place of torment, a place of anguish, a place of undone, a place in which there's tormenting flames. Nobody in his right mind surely would want to go there, but yet many will. Tonight, if you're not in a right relationship with the God of heaven, books like Daniel should teach us that He is in control of all things, and just as surely as these empires met their fate, 
they did so just as God said they would. By the way, this next empire we'll look at next Sunday night, and the Greek one came to its end too, just like God said that it would. Another is going to rise from the embers, and it too is going to dominate the affairs of the world for a while. May I say, as we think about all of these things, don't lose sight of the fact that there was a stone that crushed into the feet of the image, and that stone became a mountain and filled the whole earth. You tonight, as a faithful Christian, are a part of that stone. You're a part of that which the stone became. Aren't you thankful? Don't you feel honored and blessed? May I say, though, if you're not a faithful member of the church, you're not in that. But you should be, you need to be. God leaves the decision to you tonight. If you've reached the age of knowing wrong from right, and you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and you know that you're guilty of sin, and you know that you need those washed away, tonight it can happen. Men can't do it. No power on earth can do it. It's the power vouchsafed in the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. You know that the blood of bulls and goats, though, can't take away sin. It had to be the blood of the Master, 2 Corinthians 5.21. If tonight we could assist you to contact that blood in baptism, we'd be joyously happy to do it. If you need to take care of that tonight, don't, don't, don't delay, don't procrastinate. Just like Alexander, you may not have tomorrow. But may I say, if you have known faithfulness but you've walked away from it, come back to your first love, would you? Again, don't delay. Beseech us to pray to God on your behalf. We'll be happy to do that. As we extend the invitation at this particular moment, three kingdoms we've studied, beautiful lessons yet to come. I hope you'll look forward to studying those with us as we proceed next Sunday evening tonight. If you need to obey the gospel, do it at once, if you would, at this very moment, while together we stand and while we sing.